This is the Inquisitive Minds Podcast. Hey, thank you for tuning in to the Inquisitive Minds Podcast. I'm your host, as usual, Johnny Smith. Uh, with me today, uh, my guest is a cartoonist, a stand-up comic, artist, and author who regularly appears at comic festivals all over. Her work has been featured in The Cartoon Crier, a newspaper dealing with grief, from the Center for Cartoon Studies, and Magic Bullet, DC's comic newspaper, as well as Dirty Diamond's all-girl comics anthologies and Andrew McNeil's popular posh coloring book series. As a stand-up comic, she's appeared on A&E, HBO, and the Comedy Channel. Her syndicated comic, The Laughing Redhead, appears regularly at Go Comics. Her paintings are in the collections of Koyo Ono, if I said that right, and Whoopi Goldberg, yeah, okay. which I don't know what that is, guys, but it sounds like a hell of a combination. Uh, she loves being a mom, writing third-person bios. She also loves travel, food, making art, writing, and horror movies. Uh, welcome to the program, Teresa Roberts-Logan. Thank you, Johnny. Thanks for having me. It's a good thing Thank to do on so a much Sunday afternoon, isn't it? I agree. It uh, it really allows you to not only be productive, but learn about people that are fascinating. And I tell you what, from the bio itself, you are an extremely fascinating person. <laughs> well, you know, I like to make people think I'm fascinating, but oh, well. <laughs> well, humility, humility is, like is quite nice. I um, like a I've lot of things. To a few, I've spoken to a few people about you, uh, just casually brought you up as a guest. And uh, everyone I've spoken to has rave reviews about you. So your humility is nice, but it's not needed here. Welcome. <laughs> That's so nice. And it's so funny because it's like every time I do one of these things, like, you know, I just, I don't, I, I don't wear makeup. I don't like even for shows, I might like put on mascara, which I know is just really unprofessional. I should be like one of those, like, <laughs> but um, I'm a lipstick person. But every time I do one of these things, I'm so self-conscious. I think I need to get like lighting and, you know, cause you see yourself <laughs> really big. And because I haven't braided my hair in like 40 years, but I've started doing it during COVID uh, because I can't deal with the stuff that has come out yeah. of my head since COVID started. And um, now I'm braiding it. So I'm like going back to my crone druid back, you know, ancestry. And now I'm looking at this cause I was feeling like, God, I feel like, lopsided like one side is always heavier <laughs> i'm looking at this in the mirror like in the thing and going what is that even like what is that like what is that anyway i'm sorry i'm excited no, to be i try and i'm not this vain it's just like eh, good that's all right i try and disarm my guests uh i'm missing quite a few teeth in the front and i'm like hey guys don't worry about your hair my smile got it covered they're not looking at your hair um <laughs> Yeah, no, it looks nice. I love the, uh, and I think I'm getting really off topic here, but I love the pigtails. Uh, it looks great. And I'm not a man who's vain either, but I like to compliment people. Uh, I know what it, everybody likes to feel good. So um, from your bio, you're obviously a, a very complex individual. Uh, when it comes to stuff, let me ask you uh, about the beginnings of your journey. Uh, I guess the first question is wh what came first? You know, were you a 
artist before you were a comic or, or vice versa? You know, I don't actually know because my family is really hilarious. Like my extended family, my whole extended family were really surprised that I got into comedy because literally they're all so much funnier than I am. And so I grew up in that kind of, I'm from Tennessee. You can probably tell by listening to me and all my family's from Mississippi and everybody's just hilarious and they're really funny and banter is a big thing. And you got to be quick to have a conversation with my family. Like they're, they've, they've got a punchline and they're not, they're not trying to joke necessarily. They just say stuff and come back and they're really, so I think, I've been in that since birth pretty much around that kind of talk. And, and so writing for me is really natural, like a, a writing and um, talking and going back and forth with people is just the way I was brought up with my family. Um, but I do remember drawing from a really young age and I do remember way back when I don't know how old I was. So uh, maybe I don't remember, maybe that's not the correct word. Um, but I do remember looking around and thinking, why isn't everybody still drawing? You know, there just seems to be, I feel like people get it beaten out of them in a way, you know, okay. when you're a little kid, everybody draws. And then eventually I remember looking around and thinking, you know, a lot of people aren't drawing anymore. Why aren't they still drawing? You know? Um, and that always kind of looking back makes me sad because I feel like a lot of people get criticized out of wanting to put things on paper. With writing and with art, actually. Yeah, you know what? That's something. Um, not to get off topic. That's something I used to struggle with being a a comic. Uh, I came from the other side of the tracks, and I always saw artists and people create. Um, as I guess the way I can put it is like a more delicate people. Uh, yeah, I didn't necessarily look down, but I didn't. I didn't realize that uh, you can be creative and not fall into a specific category. And I hate to use the old uh, troop in movies they use about gang talk. You know, I didn't choose this life. This life chose me, but that's really what it sounds like uh, for you as a comic and an artist. Mm -hmm. I now I, there was a while I felt like if I could make a living a different way, I might have, but then I thought, no, nah, I'm just kind of hearing that. Like I really always knew I was going to be an artist. The comedy thing came much later. Uh, I was always writing though. I wrote and drew since I was a little kid. And even now I've gotten more back into that. And not just because of COVID. My life has just gone the way of, I like telling stories visually. I like writing scripts. I just submitted my first horror script to a screenplay competition. Which oh, I'm good really luck. I'm sorry. Good luck with that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it was okay. fun. So I know. It was fun just to get it, you know, done and sent by the deadline and just like, yeah, you know, okay, that felt good. I talked to a lot of writers on here and a lot of them talk about writing scripts and stuff like that. But I don't think I've ever asked how long is a script and how long does something like that take you to write? Like, where is your process with that? Well, you know what? It can depend on, it depends on the length. And I actually, this was a short and I only did, uh, not only because it was complete, a 20 page short, uh, which mm -hmm. I think could translate to 25 to 35 minutes or more, depending, you know, it's hard to tell, but, um, uh, I think I used to always read that most scripts were like 
90 pages at most complete scripts and the scripts that I screenplays I've written. And I had a writing partner um, in LA who's a dear friend and we've written some full length stuff together to submit places. And those were mm -hmm. 90 pages, which was aimed at an hour and a half. And then we also wrote a lot of teleplays, uh, you know, so we did those for like TV half hour things, okay. but I really got, super excited about the opportunity to write a uh, horror short um, for, it was a competition and, and I, and their limit was 25 pages. And so, but I wanted to really, I wanted to end up with 20 to, I wanted to end up with 17 to 22 pages. That's what I had in my head. And um, the way I do, I think very visually. So I actually sometimes struggle with, I want to draw everything. I actually want to storyboard everything as I'm doing it, which is why I love comics so much and making comics, mm -hmm. visual storytelling. Like, and it's also a good medium for control freaks. I'm not the first person to say that. Um, because, <laughs> you know, you're directing and casting and, you know, cinematographer, you're the cinematographer, you're the photographer, you're everything. And you're putting it all for people here. You know, I did it. And here's the story. Um, and with, this with screenwriting as as you're writing it you're thinking i hope the director does this or i hope the director and uh you know i have a director personality but then when i see what directors have to do i think that's a really that's an intense job that's an intense yeah. job you're running a corporation when you're a director but i do love the writing process and i i try one thing I try not to do too much because you don't want to step on the director's toes too much, you know, is I try not to like direct the scene while I'm writing. I try to do my screenwriter okay. job, do my screenwriter job. But, you know, it's an interesting thing because when you're coming from comics where you control all that stuff, yeah, you go into a screenplay where you're going to, you know, supposedly be handing it off to somebody. Um, yeah, it's you know, that's what, you're thinking this scene, I want this scene to look like this, you know, and it may not. That's what appeals to me about <laughs> comedy and, and podcasting. It's because I have control. Like, I don't want to yeah. be a, a control freak, but this is my baby. It's my art I'm creating. So I want to be able to control what happens with it. Well, and, you know, I think that, too, like as much I'm, I've always been like a solo better, a solo performer sort of person growing up I was in shows and I did theater and all this stuff but I I realized after doing comedy how much I love that I if you hand me a, a microphone I can do a show like I yeah. got a show I don't have to change clothes I don't have to memorize anything well I do but it's my stuff and if I want to change it in the middle if I want to change that joke if I want to if something happens I can do I can do 10 minutes on that happening and it's that much it's that much improv in it that I really love but but it is you know I I do think it's that control thing and I'm not into sports because I'm terrible at them but the only thing I was ever good at was racquetball and uh that was in college it was you know it was like okay three years ago. And um, I, I, I realized I really liked that because it was just me on the court, you know, like I didn't have to, like if I was on a team, I know this is so, this is so typical insecurity, but it was <laughs> if I'm on a softball team and I missed the ball, 
I ruin everybody's day. But if I'm in a racquetball court, I just ruin my day if I'm bad. Isn't that a terrible negative way to look at it? But that's how I, you know, and so, but I also do think I like that control freak. I have to confess that because I love that about stand up comedy. Like if you hand me a mic, I can do a show. You know, I got a show. You yeah. need a show? I got a show. I have, I have an hour. Okay, let's do it. I, I absolutely understand. I played uh, football and wrestling in high school. And, uh, you know, when you lose at a football game, especially as a little fat kid, you're on the line. It's not really your fault. Uh, when you lose in a wrestling match, it's definitely your fault. <laughs> it hurts so much. Oh, the whole team. <laughs> you know, I don't know. And, you know, people no. are posting about sports right now. And I'm like, oh, is football still a thing? Oh, okay. I didn't know that was still going on. <laughs> Yeah, how can you think about sports at a time like this? They just tried to uh, uh, attack the Capitol the other day. Oh, my God. You know what? Uh, I have been – I actually today was thinking, I hope I can – I hope I can get it together to to talk to somebody for an hour. Okay. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, and I wouldn't have bailed. I don't do that. But I – I was thinking, yeah, this to me feels like 9-11 felt, mm -hmm. except it's us. It's us against us. And that's deeper and more tragic and maybe more historic. Yeah, um, two two things on I'm, that. I'm um, in shock and I'm horrified, actually. <laughs> Just Yeah, it's, it's disgusting. Um, two things on that I want to touch on. And I'm not looking for anybody to necessarily share my opinion. But uh, I feel everyone who did that was a terrorist and a traitor to the country. And uh, growing up, traitors and treason was punishable by death. I have no sympathy for any one of you pieces of shit that stormed that fucking Capitol building. Suck my dick. Um, and furthermore, yeah. with the with the world we're living in, you know, uh, Holocaust deniers and and people people they stormed the the Capitol building and then immediately three hours later said no, it was Antifa. Like so. We're at a pace in this country. I think in another ten to twenty years, there's actually going to be nine eleven deniers. Nine oh yeah, yeah. You know what? I think that one of the hardest things because we have close family and friends, uh, you know, very beloved people that are Trump followers, mm -hmm. and they have gone. and And I also have very close family and friends that voted for Trump because they hated Hillary mm -hmm. and they are sorry. And they changed their votes this last time so that I have hope. I still have hope. What bothers me yeah. is the people that won't see that still support Trump. And I, I feel like this whole thing is such a cult of personality. I'm also not the first person to say that, but the, but the other thing is if nothing else, the handling of COVID, mm -hmm. he shouldn't have gotten five votes and those should have been his immediate family. You know, I, I feel like the handling of COVID and the just shrugging off of over 4,000 deaths a day we're up to, and they're saying it's going to be 5,000. And I'm listening to the radio and I'm hearing these stories of governors. And, and here's the thing about the division in our country is, you know, people blame us for, for saying stuff about, Trump for I was in the women's march. I've done five major marches in DC, right? And I saw okay. how careful how careful we were. I was at the women's march on 2017, the day after his inauguration. And I tell you what, we were ready. Like we were, 
I, I bought a little clear bag as my purse. I didn't bring, um, you didn't bring, you weren't supposed to bring poles that hold your sign. You were supposed to carry your sign with your hands because you weren't supposed to bring okay. sticks. You weren't supposed to, I mean, we had all these rules and guidelines and we followed them and uh, we took it very seriously. We took it seriously and we didn't schedule our March for while his electoral votes were being counted or during his inauguration, inauguration, we scheduled it for after his inauguration. And that's a big difference. We were not trying to interfere with the peaceful transition of power, but we wanted our voices yeah. to be heard. And that's the difference. And I get really, it gets my ire up, baby, when people start trying to compare that to the Black Lives Matter protests or to the women's marches. It is not the same thing. This was sedition and this was insurrection. And if you can, if you think you can look me in the eye and argue for people storming our Capitol building and smearing their feces and urinating in senators' offices, and you think that's something you can argue for, I don't want to even know you. But the problem is, we all live in the same country and, and I don't know mm -hmm. the thing that the thing that I don't know how to get past. And I had a really disheartening uh, discussion with a dear friend privately on Facebook. She just won't see, she does not see it. She does not see the negative about the worst she can say about this leadership is it's not perfect. And I'm <laughs> like, from the get-go, it's racist. If you think it's not racist, like where's your mind? Where's your heart? Like what? Where are your eyes and your ears? Like how can you deny the racism, the misogyny, the xenophobia? Like all the worst things, all the very opposite of what our country was founded on, supposedly. I mean, I know there's, I know mm -hmm. we've been doing shit since the beginning, you know, but. I also think we do have goals and we have seen glimpses and we have seen greatness. Yeah, and we I agree. Have I have that I... potential and that's the tragedy. We have the potential to, to, to work through this stuff. But Wednesday was such a setback and such, it's an impetus, but it's a setback and it was a horror. It was a horror show and not the kind of horror shows I like. It was a true, mm. true horror. I, I have a bit of an axe to grind myself. Yeah, I have a bit of a personal axe to grind about the COVID handling myself. Um, anybody that listens to the show know that knows that I lost this woman right here on screen on the 29th, and she was a mother to me. She raised me. Oh my God, and, uh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, she, she, what had happened was, and uh, I'm still processing a lot of the emotion because I, I oh, don't like to react in, in anger. But what had initially happened was one of the pastors at her church had contracted COVID and didn't tell anybody, and it spread it to over half the congregation, and she caught it, and this is what's really bothering me. She caught it before Christmas, a couple days before. Obviously, uh, my Christmases are spent over her house, and we, we canceled. You know, we said, you know what? We don't want to risk anybody else. The whole household over there has COVID. We'll cancel. We'll, we'll do something after the holidays. Um, Christmas comes and goes. They're sick. You know, everybody's miserable. I go up there on the 28th. I just had to stop at the house and grab something, you know, um, seen her. She looks sickly. I told her, you know, I love you. I just don't want to hug you because I don't want to catch COVID right now. I love you too. Next morning, she's dead. Oh, I get a phone God, call. It says, so I need sorry. you to come. I need you to come down and help get your aunt. Uh, cause she, she raised me with my mother. Like 
I call her my mother because that's what she deserves. She deserves that love. Um, but my mom called me and said, look, I need your help to get your aunt out of bed. I can't move her. I said, look, I live an hour away. I'm calling the ambulance. I called the ambulance. About 20 minutes later, my mom called me. And I'm, I'm blaming the state of shock on her for how she gave it to me because she gave me no tact whatsoever. Uh, I said, hello. She said, she's dead. She didn't make it. I said, oh, what the fuck? So, yeah, I have a bit of an axe to grind myself about that. So, I don't know. I'm so if, if, sorry if you say, for your loss. Thank it's you. So, uh, I, I genuinely appreciate that. It's so, you know, and shock and grief are what they are, even when you know it's coming. I lost my dad four years ago and lost my mom-in-law mm. a couple, about a year and a half ago. And the shock of seeing that happen, of seeing them, you know, the graphic, all the graphic physical stuff, but the shock of a major presence in your life being, I started to say extinguished, but I feel like their legacy lives on in us. And I don't like to say they're completely gone, snuffed out, blah, blah. There's not, you know, because they're with you in those spiritual mm -hmm. ways and they're with you as you live on in the ways they taught you that the legacy part. But I also think that, I mean, grief is like waves slapping at you all the time. Like it's been several years. Like I remember someone in my family uh, at, uh, at the memorial was uh, well at the um, when we were putting his ashes into the ocean started smoking and the wave of smoke hit me in the face and mm. the next time as I was still living in DC the next time I was at a bus stop and somebody near me stood off and lit up a cigarette I just lost it like the smoke hit me I didn't even know they had lit a cigarette I was just waiting for the bus and this cloud mm. of smoke covered my face and I just like doubled over and started crying. Like, I just don't think you know how grief works in you or on you. And, and it hits us all and it's always there and it's always lapping at your ankles. But then sometimes it's like, I feel like a rogue wave will hit you. And yeah, grief, absolutely. you know, don't blame the shock on anybody because the shock is the shock. Like we knew uh, those most recent deaths I've experienced, we knew mm -hmm. it was coming. We knew we were there. We've been a, a couple of years leading up to that with everything. It's still so shocking. It's still, oh, has it been four and a half? It'll be, will it be five years in April? I, I still sometimes wake up and feel like dad is here, you know, he's around. And then it, it's like, uh, and then you realize, and it's just like, oh God, you know, and it's okay. a really hard I don't thing. Mean to, I don't I'm mean sorry. to tug on the heartstrings here, but uh, I, That's you know okay. what? I completely understand. I know me and you haven't really spoke before uh, this interview. Uh, three years ago, a little over three years ago, my wife died in my arms. And oh. I, yeah, I'm, I was a widower at 30. And I'm still processing that. And part of my healing, uh, a big part of it was this woman, you know, was my mother. And you know, just to have her ripped away, it's like I've already went through, excuse me, I've already went through a situation where I lost the person I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. Then some years later, I lost the person who was a pillar in my life. I look at it as 
as uh, there were three women in my life, my wife, my aunt, and my, and my mother. Um, my aunt, and my mother raised me. And I feel like those three women showed me uh, the pillars I needed to be who I am today. My wife showed me what true love is. Uh, my mother tro- showed me what strength is. And my aunt showed me what work ethic and compassion were. And honestly, as much as I do this, you know, you got to keep going. It just, it's very difficult because you're never prepared, especially like with these quick deaths. I know this sounds weird, but I'm yearning for a death that I see coming. You know, I'd -hmm. like to have that time to be able to accept what's about to happen Mm -hmm. instead of waking up and having things ripped from you. But uh, that being said, Trump's not responsible for my wife's death, but I'm putting some of my aunt's death on him. So fuck him either way. Well, and you know what? Uh, the whole the COVID thing. I, I my husband and I were just talking about this this morning. That and you know what? And I'll say this too. I'm not one of those people who tells people not to be angry. I'm a righteous angry righteous anger person. <laughs> like I was raised Southern Baptist, and we were taught about like there's righteous anger. There is anger that is against mm-hmm. injustice and loss and needless loss. And 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 I don't know if we'll ever be able to do the math that tells us how many would still be alive had we not handled this this way. Because what Trump did was turn us into 50 countries. He laid Mm -hmm. it on the governors. And I've heard story after story of governors fighting each other and not not meaning to fight each other, but they're trying Mm -hmm. to outbid each other. You know, one governor I heard on the radio this week and he said, you know, we had PPE, we had secured it from China. We had bought it, made the deal. And then we got outbid by another state. And he's like, I can't blame that governor. He goes, but we couldn't outbid him. He said, and then we kept, he said, so we're doing that. He said, we're out, we're trying to outbid each other. All the states were, some states were getting PPE, some weren't. And then he said, we got some stuff here and it was confiscated by the federal government. And that was a thing. You remember Jared Kushner came out and said, it's ours. That stuff's ours. He literally said that on video, you know, and so the governors were dealing with that. So this governor, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was. He got a, a plane. He got all the PPE and they hid the stuff in a warehouse from the federal government so they could keep it for their state. And that's what these governors have been dealing with in their states. If you're not a favored person, if you're not a loyalist to what's his name, and I'm going to call him what's his name. If you're not a loyalist to what's his name, um, he mistreated you. He mistreated your people. And I'm looking forward to a president that now this is a president. I will say, I know he's not perfect, but I use it very differently than the, the sins and horror show that I lay it what's his name's feet. This new president really will try to be a president for everybody. And he will care about Democrats and Republicans and independents and libertarians. He'll care about you not getting COVID. He'll care about that. And that I think is our number one thing right now. This this death cult we've had going on where this party has been <laughs> shrug, shrugging off I'm hard when I look at the numbers almost every day and some people would say that's not healthy, but I, I would say it's respecting life. That's completely understandable. We've got the bar is set so low with this president Mm -hmm. that uh, Mm -hmm. 
all you need from the new president to be better is just to not be a human piece of shit. Like just to not degrade people publicly. <laughs> that like, is the as long as right, you don't. Johnny. Oh as long God. as you don't call people human garbage and like try and like destroy whole communities and turn the country against itself, you're automatically better. You know, I know a lot of people said Hillary was evil. I don't necessarily, you know, I get it. I get it. I'm not a fan of Hillary myself, but I will say, I don't necessarily know if she would have uh, handled things this way. You know, oh, Trump, you know he, she he, wouldn't have. It was misogyny. I'll go off. It was misogyny that put her down, man. But she would never have handled. She's a states person. She's a states person. She takes our allies seriously. She takes our country seriously, takes our laws and traditions seriously. Like we we've seen her taxes. You know, there's just all this mm -hmm. stuff that matters. Like we need to know about a person's taxes. We need to know who's paying them money and who they owe money to and all that stuff. And that is all we've seen. All The only trickle down that works in our country is this shit show we've got going on. Yeah, play. absolutely. Now, before we pivot back Excuse to language. Uh, actually getting to know you a little bit more, um, I just want to say, you know, I wonder, and this is just a thought exercise. I wonder how Trump's presidency would have been looked upon if he would have learned about a month into being elected to shut the fuck up. <laughs> just shut the fuck up trump you know i actually you know yesterday was it day before yesterday his twitter was shut down permanently mm -hmm. i had the first good night's sleep i've had in so long <laughs> and i woke up and i i put on twitter i put i love the smell of the absence of trump in the morning <laughs> <laughs> you know i was just like he is like a demented evil toddler the brattiest yeah. of brats that you can't give him enough the man has been given everything the most privileged he has never paid the price for anything he doesn't pay people he owes money he doesn't pay the price for his crimes he and yet all we hear from him is what a victim he is. He's such a Oh, I have a little, where's my little puppet? I have a little Looks, Trump puppet. Excuse my language here, but the one thing he does pay for is pussy. Uh, shout out to Stormy Daniels. I get it. Make your money. At the same time, though, <laughs> that seemed to me like an absorbent amount like here's to my, pay someone. Here's my Trump puppet. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh, okay. oh, oh, oh. That's from a drawing. I've been doing a little series of him. And then this is funny because I found him a prop the other day because I love pencils and pencil toppers. So here's my, sorry, I'm really still bad at this getting things up here. Here's my, here's my prop. That's funny. I the like prop it. prop is a little baby bottle. <laughs> that's a good that's segue my... showing your art uh, because it's a fascinating character. How old were you? Oh, here's, you and here's were... Sarah, what's her name? I need to do one of. I need to do one. Sarah oh, that Huckabee. Actually, I love it. With the cat. Yeah, Sarah Huckabeast Slanders. That's who that Slanders. is. Slanders. not to do watching, some new, it, I need it's, to do uh, Sarah Huckabee's head essentially on a Cheshire cat, kind of. It looks it looks yeah. rather apropos. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Like on a pillow, on a velvet pillow that she's been chewing on. And I love she's her got collar. pearls in the collar. I think the pearls in the collar always made her look a little like Wednesday Adams, 
but I don't want to insult Wednesday Adams because I love the Adams family and I can't stand the Huckabees. Oh, fair enough. So, uh, back, back to your art. Uh, what, at what point did you realize, Hey, maybe I can pursue something with this. Maybe I can take this to a professional level. I want to keep doing this. You know, I think I might've been in high school or right after high school when, Somebody who knew I was an artist, you know, because you're always getting people saying, oh, I heard your daughter does art or I heard you do art or whatever. Can you do this sign for me or can you do this for me? So I was always kind of volunteering to do stuff at church, like free stuff, signs and junk like that. But um, I think I remember I was in high school or early college when. So I had had enough people ask me about art that I decided that I wanted that to be my major. I was an art major. But I remember getting asked to design cross-stitch designs. And I did those. And I was really young. I think I was still a teenager when I did that. And I got paid for them. And I was like, oh, you can get paid to do stuff. So, yeah, I can make money with my art. And then um, in college, you know, I was just more, I was a graphic design major. And I was very exposed to commercial art then and stuff. But I think like I remember in high school doing posters for things and I loved and, you know, art was art was always the thing that I loved, put a lot of time into, you know, and I was rewarded. I got good grades in art, you know, and I always felt like this is something I can handle, you know, so who cares if I fail Jim, you know, Um, (laughs) so Jim just was a heart, you know, I hated Jim beyond like most nerds and uh, I just I was always a little I'll confess a little bitter that they didn't make the jocks draw for two hours every day they made me exercise but they wouldn't make the jocks do what I have to do you know I was like why don't the jocks and cheerleaders have to draw a twig for two hours like why why do I have to do their thing but they don't have to do my thing to be (laughs) fair a lot of those guys uh, <laughs> found their top spot in high school with the athletics and then uh, are now just alcoholics and dead-end jobs, not to malign uh-huh. uh, well, high school athletes. Well, I don't hate athletes and I don't hate jobs, but I just remember it just feels like it's so out of balance. Like we have to do their thing, but they don't have to get tested on our thing. Like I wanted to make, I wanted to see them have to memorize a script and I wanted to see them have to draw. But anyway, it's okay. They don't want to. I actually later got like, well, do I really want to punish them in the way that I'm punished? Yeah. I wish I wish this country focused more on art and the cultivation of it because I feel like a lot of creatives are stifled um, just just by the stigma. You know, like mm-hmm. I said, I love artists. I'm an artist. You're an artist. And my friends are artists. But when I first became a performer, I had that negative connotation with artists, you know, as I don't want to, you know, nerds or wimps and things like that. And we mm-hmm. come from all walks of life. Teresa, True. where did you go to college? Um, it was Memphis State University when I went to it. It was now it's called the University of Memphis. So I grew up in Memphis and I just lived at home and went to college from home, basically. And I really loved it. I had really amazing teachers and um really learned to love art in a lot of ways that I hadn't before. Even though I remember in high school, I had like really, when I think back, she was a brilliant art teacher. 
Um, and I had a brilliant drama teacher too, who inspired me a lot and I did plays and stuff. Um, and then after college, I got, I got interviewed by Hallmark and I went and worked for Hallmark cards for a few years. And then I, oh. while I was at Hallmark is how I met, uh, started getting into comedy. We did this improv presentation one time and there was a guy who worked in the humor department at Hallmark. And he said, have you ever thought of doing stand up?" I said, no. And he goes, you ought to think about doing stand up. I'm like, oh, really? So we went to some open mic nights and I thought, hey, I can be that bad. And I um, <laughs> went to some open <laughs> And I was. Great. I'm sorry to interrupt you. But that is <laughs> no, great. That's okay. um, you know, for like, I'm a baby in stand up still. I'm under three years. Uh, but for those guys that are go. just want to start out trying out, um, we all are absolute garbage at the beginning. Don't feel bad. Just get up there and start spewing your bullshit. That's hilarious. I, I, I can do that, Matt. And I preach about this. Like, I just am like, I have the most respect. I know we all go uh, open mic night, but it is the hardest thing to do to get up and do stand up for that first time. And everybody oh, deserves yeah. more than a pat on the back for doing that. It is so brave. And being a comedian is so brave. And I always, I just respect that people try it, that you get past the nerves enough to hold the mic. You know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it is scary, but everybody's been through it, you know, that ha yeah. does stand up, you know, and I feel like if you can just remember that, like, you're not the first person to have these feelings, all these feelings, no matter how funny you are. And, you know, it, it is funny, though, in open mic, when you see the people who don't have the nerves, who are like, everybody yeah. at work tells them they're hilarious. And they've been told their whole lives they're hilarious. And they look at look down on all the hardworking comics standing around. They're like, yeah, I'm going to blow these people away. And then they get up there and they're like, duh, 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 and like, <laughs> and, and, and you see it register. <laughs> you see it register. Oh shit, there's a different them. animal up here. Like, yeah, it's harder, isn't it? Than you thought. But I always have, even for the jerks, I always have that sympathy. And I always think, well, most of those guys come around, they realize immediately they gain instant respect yeah. and an instant uh, for all the people that are getting up there and actually getting laughs and winning the crowd and like yeah, how much there is and how much you have to think about when you're up there. And if something happens, you deal with it and, you know, all that stuff. I, I love doing stand up. I really do. I don't it's do it nearly as much as I'd like to. It's a different kind of fear, too, because, yeah. uh, you know, I have natural confidence. I've been in some situations. Um, I used to think that the most uh, nervous or, or scared I was was walking onto a new prison block. You know, when you're just a brand new guy and you're there. That's an intimidating feeling until oh I stepped God. on stage for the first time. You know, <laughs> I, I, I was so nervous. I was shaking so bad. My whole body was vibrating. Well, and it's funny, though, once you've conquered that, trying it the first time, you've conquered that because you did it. You got up there, you know, and I always tell people, like, somebody told me early on, like, you need to remember that really most of the audience wants you to do well. Most of the audience is a hostile. <laughs> most of them really are on most levels rooting for you. You know, they want to come and laugh and you just... I think, and I think a huge part of it too is just being likable. And, yeah. um, you know, I've seen comedians that have stellar careers who I think they still don't seem to know how to write a joke <laughs> the way I think, you know, and that's personal opinion. 
but yeah. they are so likable and they're naturally humorous and that's enough. It's enough. It's fun. You know, and I am like, you go, that's awesome. Cause you get it. You get that the audience matters. And yeah, I think a I lot of comics don't get that, that they don't get that the audience matters. They do matter. It's not all about, it, it's about y'all having this experience. Um, that's yeah, why zoom comedy to me is them. just like, uh, Agree. I can't. I can't do anything. Uh, I feel productive on Zoom comedy because you don't get the reaction. A lot of people don't realize that stand-up comedy is like uh, an organism. You know, you need the audience just as much as they need the comedian. Um, you're absolutely right, though. Every now and then, you'll get that guy who's sitting there with his arms folded, like uh, prove yeah. to me you're funny. <laughs> I, I can't stand that guy. And they and don't that's understand the, the guy you're focused on. You're always like, God, God, yeah. come on, guy. <laughs> <laughs> they don't understand the uh, complexities of stand-up too a lot of times because like just go back to my first open mic. You know, I did it. Um, I got a couple laughs. Uh, by my standards today, it was awful. But for my first time, I was very happy with it. And then two days later, I went and hit my second open mic, said the same set, you know, same four and a half, five minute set, didn't get a single laugh and thought, man, what is wrong <laughs> with me? <laughs> what is yeah. wrong with me? I think that's one of the things that people don't understand how much that messes with you at the beginning before you're seasoned season, yes. you know, at the beginning, you're like, I remember having a good set. The very first time I went up and did comedy, you know, good at that level. Wasn't yeah. like, Oh my God, she's a star. But it was like, <laughs> okay, I didn't, I didn't die. Uh, it, it was, I, I remembered what I wanted to say, you know, but but then going on the next few weeks, I remember one of the bookers in Kansas, Kansas City, and I was talking to him, and he said, yeah, we were waiting for you to hit that show, because it was the one where I was like, kept having good shows, and I was like, yeah, stand up, yeah, stand up, you know, <laughs> and then, and then, and then uh, well, there was this one night at a hell gig, which is mostly what I did the first three years, you know, it was hell gigs in the Midwest, yeah. and um, I Bombed. And you know, and it was the same material that the audience the night before just laughing their asses off, laughing, laughing so much I had to cut out stuff to stick to my time. Oh, I'm hilarious. And then the next <laughs> night you get up there and go, da, da, da. and nobody, <laughs> and it just messes with you. You're like, these are the same jokes I told last night. This is the same thing, the exact same, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And, and how many times does that happen? And it's funny because, you know, you get seasoned enough to where, like I'm at that point now where I'll go, that's a funny joke and I'm going to wait, you know, and then they think that's kind of funny at least. But, you know, I'm just kind of like, I'll wait. I got it. Um, yeah, it's, it's and a I weird mental situation. And I you build situation. that confidence. It's, I'm sorry. What did you say? It's a, it's a weird mental situation. It is. Because like it you is. said, after you have a good set, especially very early on, and you don't have a lot of bomb, and you get off and yeah. you're like, yeah, I am comedy. Deal with it, yeah. fuckers. Bow down. Yeah. And then you start bombing. <laughs> and, you know, you don't realize until later how important it is to bomb and feel comfortable in that uncomfortable space. You know, mm -hmm. I can't always turn it around now, but I definitely lean into it. It's, it's not something I fear. And that comes from um, the Arcade Comedy Theater. Uh -huh. Shout out to them. I yeah. uh, First off, I took a class there with Colin Chamberlain. He was my teacher, and that's how I got into it. But I remember I was about six months in, maybe five months in, and I was doing beta stage. And uh, uh. for like an idiot, 
I asked for a 15 minute slot because you know, I'm, I'm five months in, I am comedy. And uh, I went up there and I told jokes to people for 15 minutes of silence. And the, <laughs> the act before me absolutely murdered. And the act after me absolutely oh, murdered. And I hurts. just got there. Yeah, I was like, oh, oh, it's devastating. It does hurt. It does hurt. And it's funny, but you just have to keep, it's that old thing of we all fall. You just got to keep getting up again. You know, you just got to keep <laughs> going. Yeah, at one point and not, and not show, let it affect your your confidence, you know. Yeah. At one point during that show, you know, obviously you see it's not going well, but you know, they beat it into your head, do your time, do your time, do your time. And I remember just looking at the entire audience and just got a little upset. I was like, well, if you guys didn't like that one, you're going to fucking hate this one (laughs) (laughs) going off. Um, No, but it's, it's so rewarding too, because you forget about how low the lows are once you get that round of applause. It's just the best. It really is so fun. I mean, it is when, especially when you're going with the audience and, and you can kind of tell what they like. And it's also fun if you have like edgier stuff and, and you feel them going with you there and then you can pull stuff out that you haven't really, it's a funny thing that you haven't really delivered to another audience that you're like, cause you knew they wouldn't go with it. And you yeah. love those audiences where you can just like pull that stuff out and go, ah, man, I've got, you think that's funny? Thank you. I got you. Get it. I got this other thing for you, and uh, and and also your tags get better because you know the audience mm-hmm. is with you and stuff. And it's funny how I don't. It sounds really arrogant to say, but I was like, I've thought of audiences where they were so tepid and sphinctery and uptight, <laughs> and you can't you can't have fun with them. You know, because they're like, I wonder, I wonder what she's going to say. And I actually work pretty clean. I cuss now because I just okay. don't care anymore and because life and because I'm older and because uh, who cares if people cuss. Um, except I've always worked my show. Material's been always clean. And mostly I am mostly clean. Most sets I do. I don't cuss. But I, I just now I'm not. I don't, you know care if anybody does I never cared if anybody else did I just never did that but I do now and then and I've seen audiences though when you talk about like I like to talk I like to throw out some religion and politics because I think that's important stuff to talk about and some people get sphinctery and I call them out on it and go we're going to talk about the y'all gonna you know and it's funny but then you know, you can tell audiences that are like, it really tightens them up. And then you feel like, mm, we're not going to have as much fun as we could have had if you'd have been looser. Yeah. If y'all would have been looser, yeah. you could have, you don't, you can't believe how much more fun we could have had. But okay, I got it. I got the temperature of the room. You know, I got that. Yeah. I'm a professional and I'm yeah. a professional. So I'll react, I'll respond to that. But it is, it is funny because I've been in audiences, um, the my best audiences are are uh, multiracial audiences or all black audiences or like my best shows I did. I remember having the most fun at this. There was a church out in Hampton Roads in Virginia that used to have me back, and they I just loved. That was the funnest audience, and it was very mixed racially. I told a friend of mine, I said, "This is what I think heaven would look like is like the people in this church, you know." Aww. and they were really 
cool and chill and just really open. It's openness is what it is. It's an openness um, you find with some audiences that, and that audience yeah. come, always springs to mind. And then I also had an audience, I had audiences in Virginia. I used to produce comedy shows there. And once that mm-hmm. audience got used to me, because I did it clean comedy shows, build them as clean comedy shows. And we did, they were squeaky clean, like church clean. Cause I think it's important for comics to know how to do that myself, actually. Absolutely. Something I think. Absolutely. I don't, but, um, but once they got comfortable with the people I brought in and with me month after month, they got looser and looser and more comfortable. And I just feel like there's something in our culture that wants that respect. I don't know that that feels like that uptightness is it's puritanical. I mean, it's, it's that, that, that mm-hmm. respecting the uptightness, you know, is like, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to see, we're going to test you that kind of, Hmm, let's see. Mm. It's just like, nah, you know, be looser and we'll have so much more fun. Like just Absol- don't prejudge absolutely. me. Let presume that I'm going to do my best and let's have a good time. And I do feel like that that's that I, I really don't I really don't I don't know what it is or what you can say to people culturally, and I don't mean specific audiences, because you do deal with specific audiences as they come, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty good at that. Um, at trying to loosen them up a little, you know, just feeling the temperature of the room and try to loosen them up. But I think that loosening them up so that they're not, I don't know, I, I guess I also feel sorry for people that can't Can't relax. take a joke. And yeah, that, that can't relax and just be like, I wonder what this person's going to say, you know, instead of like, hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see if this is going to be it, you know, you know, and you can feel yeah. that with people. You can feel audiences that are like, okay, all right. Is, is this comedy? It's interesting is this what too. this when, is? When, <laughs> when you get into comedy, you, you have this idea of what kind of uh, comic almost you're going to be and who you're going to appeal to. And it's funny that you mentioned like your best audiences because I had never thought uh, my target demographic and the best show I've ever done has been for middle-aged black women. I don't know why they absolutely love me. Um, and the people who hate me more than anything are older white dudes. Well, like when I do stand up, they're like, me Oh, too. fuck me this too. guy. Me too. And you know, I could, I remember working Vegas and I was being, I was the middle act at catch a rising star. So there was a MC, okay. me and a headliner. So MC would come out and do like 10 minutes. I would do 20 ish. The headliner would do 45 an hour. It was at Bally's casino resort. Uh, and then it was at the MGM Grand in Vegas. And I loved working there. They treated you so great. You know, and it was really cute how they treated you. Like you'd go, you'd go and they'd say, we, you ha- here's your list of radio interviews. They literally would give you like this little card and um, they'd have the names and info on it. They'd have the tip for your limo driver that came to pick you up. Oh, wow. Limo from the hotel to the radio station back then. It was back in the day when you had to go to the radio station. Um, but th- I hope people still <laughs> do that. But uh, you get a limo with your tip and your card and your info. These treat you just so great. And then you do shows every night. But oh, and I also got to go get in all the shows in the casino for free. So I saw Tom Jones like four times from the booth. Oh, that's so cool. Tom Jones is one of my heroes. And um, I just love him. 
And, uh, but I saw George Carlin and all kinds of people, you know, but I remember our show, I had told a couple and, and I got used to it because I worked there enough that I just knew that's how these audiences were going to be. First of all, they've got these big banquet seats that they can lie back in kind of, you know, that beautiful Vegas showrooms with tables mm-hmm. and stuff. And then these big banquet and they would be, you know, they've been drinking and gambling all day and they're tired and, you know, they have the shows they've been going to are topless, beautiful women. So they come and see it like three <laughs> comics, you know. <laughs> like you feel like, oh, I, you want to go, I'm sorry, I'm not breathing fire. I'm sorry, I'm not the Titanic sinking on stage. Oh, you know, but uh, they come and they're they're kind of challenging and they didn't laugh as loudly. And the sound in the room was weird. And I remember the first time working there, the booker actually warned me. She said, you know, this uh, these are different. Vegas audiences are different. And it was like the laughter was different. They were quieter. The room ate up the sound. And I remember coming off the first night going, mm, I don't know. And she came up to me and said, the manager of the room and said, that was awesome. You did an amazing job. And I'm like, excuse me? Like, I was like, were you in the room? No, I, I tried not to be too much like that. But I was like, what? What? <laughs> really? She was like, oh, yeah. She says, Teresa, it's the acoustics. Like, you can't. She said, they were really, you really, that you did a great job. I'm just, she said, I know how it is. Everybody says that when they work here the first time. Well, I got used to that, but it was funny because the one thing that I noticed, and I had said this to the other comics, is when I walk out on stage, the men, a, like a wave at a stadium, would cross their arms and lean back. Like, you know, See, cross I their arms and lean approach. back. Oh, yeah. And then I told the other comics, and they were like, you're just being paranoid. Like, you just, come on. And I was like, okay, tonight I want y'all to watch. I said, I want to see you at the edge of the stage. I want y'all watching when I walk out on stage, you know, and I did win them over, but that's what I started out every time. I mean, I, they said, Oh my God, I came off stage. They're like, Oh my God, you're right. They said, well, you made them laugh. And I'm like, yeah, I make them laugh. But I said, I have a hurdle that I didn't create. Like I walk out and they're like, Oh, a woman, you know, I said, yeah. literally, they said, they, they were like, they literally crossed their arms. I said, yeah, I've been telling you that it's weird. It's a weird thing. Yeah. I don't know why uh, female standups don't get like the respect that they deserve. Like they, a lot of people, especially, you know, these broy dudes. Yeah. These broy <laughs> dudes, you know, um, they don't give women a chance. And I, and I just don't get it. Like one of my or favorite comedians. Special show to be all women. Like yeah. we do all male shows all the time. Nobody goes, it's an all male show. Look, it's male <laughs> night. It's male like, night uh, at the club. It's like, just book people like we're funny. Yeah. Um, like, uh, Kathleen Madigan, you know, I I know she's a famous comedian, but she's not like, uh, you know, Kevin Hart famous. I would implore people to think women aren't funny. Uh, not only check my guest out, obviously, uh, (laughs) but check out Kathleen Madigan. I think she's like one of the top 15 comics. She's hilarious. Kathleen Madigan is a comedy master. And if you haven't watched her sets, you've got to watch her. She's hilarious. Yeah, she's a treat. She's hilarious. I used to work with her now and then. Oh, God. I mean, I started decades ago. Uh, I think the first time I went up on stage was in 1986. And then I took, I'd say I took about a dozen years off the road when my son was born. So you can subtract that if you want, but I did do gigs now and then. But like his first two years of life, I didn't, 
pretty much do any. And then until he was in school, I didn't really do, I didn't really do stand up on the road like I had done. I would do occasional gigs. But before that, I was I on a, the road all the time. Yeah. I have an interesting question because I talked to, obviously, I talked to quite a few stand ups. Um, you uh, have one that is a child that's older now. Uh -huh. um, can you talk a little bit about how it was after you started getting back into stand up, how it was balancing being a parent and, and doing stand up? And how did your son react to you being a stand up comic? Well, it's funny because he like because he's a little kid and he didn't come to the clubs much, you know, in Denver is where I lived in Colorado for 20 years. And um, but he would come to if I did outdoor festival stuff. But that I mean, I wasn't like having to take care of him so much at, during shows because I have a very involved husband who did every much ever has done and still does. We do every bit as much parenting as each other. You know, I'm not one of those women that's like well, my husband's not going to blah, 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 you know, because my husband's very involved. <laughs> yeah. so, so I have to do everything. That's not how my marriage or my family life is. Thank God. Um, but at the beginning, I remember, I remember, well, this is going to be great material. And, and so I got a little more material out of it. But he he's always just been proud of it. I mean, and Andrew, eventually, he was a dancer. He did Irish step dancing for years. And he okay. did plays plays and stuff. But he's in the wine business now. He, he loves, he's a psalm. Like, he's a guy that works with wine. That, that's definitely, that's a, <laughs> a, a COVID-proof business right there. He's, uh, <laughs> yes, he's not going to lose his job. Yeah. It truly I, is. I, I think it's weird because I'll go up. You know, I'll go out and do stand up and, and you know how it feels, uh, especially if it's a good show. You know, the people not only that were on the show with you, the people that watched it, they love you. You know, they want to shake your hand or whatever after after the show. And then I'll go home and, you know, like uh, or I'll go to my families and my little cousins or whatnot. Nobody gives a shit. I just made a, a <laughs> room true. full of 80 people, you know, die of laughter. No one oh, cares. Yeah. They're just like, Shut up. You're not funny, John. Oh, yeah. And like my husband's in theater. And so like between the two of us, like our whole life has been filled with like working with famous people or knowing famous people or so that's not even a thing. So I don't think our son thinks he's never thought anything about it. he's just like, Oh, that's cool. You know, but uh, this is kind of used to that kind of thing. But I think that the see, he has seen us both on stage and he has seen productions and things. He's seen a lot of things we've both produced or directed or stuff. Um, and he's proud of it and everything, but it's not like he's not like glassy out because he's also done, he's performed a lot. Like, so he's kind of, it's just kind of part of his life. I think like, I think if, if, if you grow up and you've never been around that at all, it's probably weirder. But since he's seen us, you know, and his dad and me, and he's been on stage, he doesn't have this kind of what a weird thing to do kind of idea about it. Yeah, it's definitely um, different when you're performing and, and you get into like that lifestyle of becoming a performer where you're trying to make that your income. The allure of celebrity a lot of times loses some of its shine, like as far as like, uh, oh, yeah, oh, my God, being celebrities. Yeah, I remember when I started, I was real uh, pumped yeah. that I might be able to meet such and such or such and such. And now I'm like, that's fine. I don't want to meet him as a fan. I eventually want to meet him as a contemporary. Well, and it's funny to me too because celebrity. Don't let me forget to tell me tell you the at the pool in Vegas story. 
But okay. um, the most famous people I know and have dinners with and I'm close to or have known for years or whatever, I, nobody knows about that hardly because maybe some close friends of mine know, but I'm not one of those people who's like, here's a picture of me with so-and-so at dinner. Like I just am real, like more protective of them usually than they are of, of where they are at what time. Cause I, I do right see people do that a lot. Like where they'll go, I'm here at this restaurant with so-and-so and it's like, ah, you just told everybody where that person is, you know, and I, I don't even hardly do that. I hardly ever take those kind of pictures. I never did when I worked with famous people. Um, when I started, you know, you didn't have iPhones when I started. So yeah. that wasn't as easy to do either. Um, and I think, you know, I can argue with myself if that's smart marketing, if you're trying to be a celebrity, you know, you want to go look at all the celebrities I get to hang out with. But I kind of don't see them like that. And I just see them as people. And I have through Gary's work, I have dinners with amazing people. And I don't, people never know about that. It's one of those things like, like I've always thought if I were a billionaire, like you wouldn't know it. Nobody would ever see me. I wouldn't be on TV going, I'm a billionaire. You know, I'd be like, I would fund some art. I would do like, I would fund some arts projects. I would set up some, you know, funding for art, for film and art and comedy. And then I'd go like live on my island off Scotland. You know what I mean? I wouldn't, it would be like the bye world. I would not be going, <laughs> look at me. I'm at a party. I'm a billionaire. I don't understand that. That's okay. I guess I know I'm an introvert. I'm an extroverted introvert. You know, like where it's like, Ew, I don't want to do that. I want to stay home and drink tea and read books. And you know, it's so funny to me. Like I'm always so surprised that we even know about billionaires. Like, cause you would never know. Yeah. You would never have heard of me at all well, well the you, thing you is, still, nobody's still ever heard of me but i'm just saying <laughs> would not be we, we know about them what I would we, do. But the billionaires that we know about we don't really know what they do like their day-to-day -day. like we know jeff bezos is a billionaire we know you know elon musk uh, bill gates we know all these saudi and, and and moguls that are billionaires but we don't know what they do day-to-day -day. you know we just get well, a big picture but you know the see my thing is you wouldn't even know i'm a billionaire like i would okay I, nobody would know like, <laughs> I just don't understand. There's, there's quite a few that are like that, too, because I, I when I read the uh, – every now and then I'll read the Forbes, you know, billionaire list. And I don't know, 90% oh, of the people yeah, I, I don't know. yeah, I guess if Forbes finds you out, you'd have to – yeah, I guess you could yeah. <laughs> now, before you Now, you, before you tell me about the Vegas pool story, I'm very interested in that. Um, I'd realize something that you have a much different perspective on than I do. Uh, when you came up as a stand-up, there was no, you know, quick social media, internet, mm -hmm. blah, 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 like we have mm -hmm. now. You know, I can sh send you my tape like that. Here's a link to YouTube. Um, from what I understand back then, first off, the pinnacle was like, oh, I got to get on Johnny, Johnny Carson. Mm -hmm. But other than that, you also had to send out VHS tapes. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what it was like uh, trying to get on stage back then? Yeah, you know, I sent out VHS tapes and everybody used to tell us, don't send out tapes. All they do is they don't look at them. They just tape porn over them. I'm like, okay, well, I still have to send out tapes. <laughs> um, but I'm, yeah, that's what we always heard. It's like nobody looks at them. They just use them to tape other stuff. I love how everything is right to porn. <laughs> yeah, it's so sad. And that was just like, really, really, thanks you know, here we are trying so hard and it's like, oh good, another tape, a free tape. That's what they were, they weren't <laughs> looking at your act. So sad. 
So, but um, I do remember the, one of the most remarkable stories to me, and it's an almost story, was I sent, I just, I didn't have representation, which I've, I've had a couple of times and I've had offers for representation and I've just kind of didn't get it. Like I don't, I turned out, I turned down a couple of people that could have made me famous probably, but I just didn't get it. Like why I should do that at that level or whatever. And I've never, I've, I just haven't really had agents and I've had one or two managers quickly and it just isn't. I don't know. It's an interesting thing. I'm, I always admire people who have that all figured out because I, I have not figured it out. Um, oh man, but, I don't have anything but, figured out. <laughs> no, I don't either. And, um, but I mailed a tape to the tonight show and I just get this phone call one day and this was before cell phones too, you know, pretty much um, from Jimmy Brogan at the tonight show. And he said, we think you're really funny and we'd like you to come out and audition. I'm like, what? And then I had yeah. that whole thing of like, they're going to see me. This is the moment. This is the moment like, ta-da, I'm about to be famous. And then I went out and I did my audition and he came up and he said, I think you're very funny. Can you do another set the next night? So I can't remember the clubs. Was it Catch a Rising Star and, or was it God Dog? You know, a person should remember stuff like this. Was it comedy? <laughs> was it the comedy store? Like it was a couple of Ice House and Comedy Store. Like it was a couple of really famous clubs. Like, yeah, this could be why you've never heard of me because I don't remember the important stuff. But I do, <laughs> I do remember Jimmy Brogan, who was awesome. But um, he, so he came up and he said, that was very funny. I want to see you again the next night. So, so, what, so I did two nights at two clubs. And he said, you're very funny. I'm going to pitch you to, to Jay. Jay Leno was doing it at the time. And I was like, yes. And I was staying with this producer friend of mine, who's a dear friend of mine from the road, from comedy. But then she was, she's, uh, she's a producer, like she was an exec producer of King of the Hill and other shows. She's done a lot of stuff. She's got in these, you know, I was staying with her. Okay. She's a dear friend while I'm doing this, right? Just crashing at her apartment. And she was working her butt off. Like I was really just crashing at her place. And she was so cute because she said, you're so low maintenance. You can stay here anytime you want. And she said, I said, oh yeah, I, I actually am very low maintenance. She goes, my last friend that stayed here wanted me to like take her out every night. But I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm not that person. I just kind of get my stuff done and, you know, come back home and sleep. And um, so I did my things and I was telling her about it. I was so excited. Well, I get this phone call and it's Jimmy Berger. And he says, well, Teresa. And I'm thinking, here it is, my moment. He says, yeah, I pitched you and they didn't bite. And I'm like, what? Ooh. And I remember just going, what? Like, I just couldn't believe it. He And then looking back, I realized that that was the time that there was like all this Letterman and Leno fight and fighting stuff mm. going on. And, and they didn't have many women on the show, but I just figured I wasn't quite what they needed. And it didn't, looking back, I'm kind of like, oh, well. And then he said, I want you to come back in a few months and audition again. And I was like, really? Okay. But I was still really disappointed. And I really yeah. grieved for a few days, like, cause you really thought that was like your moment. It was just silly. Mm -hmm. It, in the arc of career stuff, looking back, it's a blip, but you know, in the moment you're devastated and oh, I yeah. really grieved for a couple of days, uh, more than, and I remember I couldn't. And then the next time he had told me back, come back in a few months. Well, I got pregnant and then was throwing up every half hour and then had a baby. So I told him, I called him while I was pregnant. I said, you know what? I just found out I'm pregnant. So I won't be coming out to audition again. 
anytime soon because I'm vomiting every 30 minutes because I had a really tough way like that, like seriously was like concerned I was vomiting so much. But you know, that's I something like, I want to touch on I can't do comedy right now because I'm barfing all the time. And he was like, okay, that's fine. He said, well, when you, when you can, you know, let's just keep in touch. And I really didn't because then I have a child, you know, but mm-hmm. the thing is, I here's another stupid thing. Looking back at stupidity and, and performers and stuff, it's so embarrassing, but I'll tell you. So my friend, <laughs> my the reason I told you about my producer friend is I'm staying with her and she takes me to the studio where she's working um, just so I can see stuff and meet some people or not really meet people so much as just see stuff. And here's where I work, you know? Okay. So I remember I had, and I had gotten the call, right? So I'm in this, you know, oh, I don't really probably don't need to be meeting people while I'm walking around feeling like a tragedy on, on wheels. And I, she was like, Oh, and we go into this, like there's this little cafeteria area where people are sitting eating their friends of hers that work with her. She goes, this is my friend, Teresa. She was in, she's in town uh, auditioning for this night show. And they're all like, oh, great. Congratulations. Well, that's very cool. And I said, well, <laughs> such an, I was such an idiot. I go, I remember this so clearly. I go, well, they didn't bite their loss. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed when I think about it. It's just one of those like, what a stupid idiot. You know, when I look back, I'm just like, I'm turning red. You can probably see it. I just think about it. And I'm so horrified that that's what I chose to say to those people in that moment. And she, my friend Cheryl got it. She was kind of like, you know, like, looking like, yeah, she's in a moment. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like so dramatic, though. I was like, well, they didn't buy it. So and they're like, oh, I'm sorry. Before they could even get out, I'm sorry. I'm like, it's their loss. You know? <laughs> like, it's just so terrible. It's so embarrassing. Something Ugh. you mentioned that I want to touch on. Um, you said I have you a got- lot of embarrassing stories, though. <laughs> we, we all do. You, you haven't been doing comedy if you're not uh, full of embarrassing yeah, stories. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you had got pregnant with your son. And essentially that put the kibosh on it for, you know, give or take 12 years. Uh, Mm -hmm. My first question was that you're choosing to do. Yes. And it's a funny thing because you can choose. I mean, women can choose to do it different ways, but you know, when your body is how your child is getting fed its first six months, you know, that's a big deal. You got to be around. And I remember I had a friend call me and say, um, my friends at church said that it won't matter at all. If I have children right now, my career like won't, it won't miss a beat. And I said, it, I said, I, I'll be truthful with you. I said, you will miss a beat, but I said, you can make it up in other ways and it's totally worth it. You know? And honestly, if I had wanted to pursue that whole, like, well, let's use the tonight show. Maybe I could have, you know, my husband was in theater. He totally is supportive. I didn't have a home life where I didn't have support. So I could have chosen to do different things and jump back in sooner and stuff. And I did do comedy now and then during those years, but I mainly focused on art and writing because um, I could be at home. Um, but I, I told this woman, I said, don't let anybody tell you it's not anything. 
And I hate that message to women. I hate that message where people go, you won't miss a beat. It's nothing. It's like, uh, well, you've created a human that you have to keep alive. So mm -hmm. there's some responsibilities therein. And um, But I know people that their career didn't appear to miss a beat to other people. And, and I think that's their mastery of, of what people see because it's yeah. much harder. It is hard yeah. and it's not nothing. And I just want people to go, you can, you can, but you have to choose different things. You have to, you have to reconfigure things. So right. well, I, the reason I hope I, I'm being clear about that. Oh yeah. The reason I ask, um, obviously I'm a guy. So as much as I try, I still don't understand, <laughs> you know, everything that women go through. And I didn't, I, I don't think I ever saw a woman pregnant on stage until Ali Wong, uh, when she released that special. Uh-huh. I then, don't think there um, had been that I know listening, of. Listening to her comedy and then, uh, Tammy Pascatelli and a few uh -huh. other women talking about it. And, from how they made it seem, uh, the industry acted like getting pregnant was a death sentence. Has yeah, that changed? Do. do you know if that's changed uh, in more modern times? Now, here's my thing, too. Um, I think that if people want to be pro-life, they'll change our culture for women. And mm -hmm. I think that being truly pro-life for women is creating a culture where they don't give up careers to have children. And let me be clear, that's not what I did. Like, I didn't give up things. Like, I changed, you know, I changed paths and I did different things. And I don't, I'm not going, I had a child and I had to give up comedy because that's not what happened. And I got more of my TV stuff and all that later. And I was glad to have that time. And you know what? A kid gives you a lot of material too. So I'm not that person who says, I gave it up for that at all. That's not what I'm right saying. But what I am saying is, our culture makes it harder for women at every turn. They want, the, you know, the, the friends of mine who consider themselves most pro-life are the ones who vote against programs for women and children, who vote against equal pay, who, you know, think that women should do more of the work on ABC, you know, and it's heartbreaking because all these things don't exist in a vacuum. Like women need support. Children need support. Be pro-life. Be pro if be pro-women and children. And also be pro-men. Be pro-men and give men credit for being great parents. My husband's a great parent. My dad was a great dad. You know what I mean? I I feel like give men some credit. And I'm and I yeah. it's a weird, it, it's a weird thing that the most anti-life and anti-family things are done by the people who want to wear it on their bumper stickers on their cars. You know, they mm -hmm. want, you know, they want you to see them like that, but their actions say something completely different. So I guess my, my message, I always try to just say, yes, it's different. You don't have to give up your dreams. I haven't given up my dreams. I never have. And I won't. And I and I have this amazing child that is oh, he's so amazing. I'm so I love being a mom. Um, but I did make choices and I did reconfigure. And I feel like it's also a trap, a horrible thing to tell women the message that nothing will change. You can just you don't miss a beat. And and when they do miss a beat, they feel like failures when they feel like, oh, I thought I could just keep like no 
but you can keep your dreams, but you have to do it a little differently if you're going to raise your child, you know. Um, right and, on. I was and uh, be, be there for your kid. You you really do need to rethink like how can I do my dreams? And it's mean and it's cruel to tell people nothing changes, um, and then they yeah, go in thinking that. And it's like no, no. So I told this friend of mine that called, and she said, "Well, so and so said it's not that it'll be fine." That blah, blah blah, and I'm like. It'll be fine, but it'll be very different. And you are going to have to miss mm -hmm. a beat. And you are going to have to be there when your kid is a baby. And you know what I mean? It's like. Yeah, absolutely. It's life. It's just, it's very I was, practical. I was raised in a house full of women. Um, very little male influence. So growing up, all I saw <laughs> was strong women. You know, they, they ran the house. Mm -hmm. They took care of everything. And I didn't know. Uh a lot of the stuff women had to deal with, especially for men growing up until I got into comedy, I started seeing, Oh shit, dudes are pieces yeah. of shit. They're terrible. <laughs> um, they try and take advantage all that jazz. Um, and I'm sure um, it was just as difficult when you came up, how were you able to successfully navigate all those landmines of pieces of shit dudes? Well, I did meet those guys, but um, they're, I will tell you, like, first of all, out there, a lot of culturally, there's a lot of cultural crap going around this where people will act like if you're pro-woman, you're anti-man. And I'm, no, that's not the same thing. And I'm one of those people that I had a great dad. I have a great brother. I love my husband. He's my best friend. He's just completely awesome. I love my son. I think my best friend in college was a man. I love men and I love women and I don't like it when people try to say oh well you you're anti you're anti-man and I hear a lot of that kind of material uh anti-male stuff I'm not that person but I don't want to censor people like you talk about what your experience is you yes, talk about absolutely. that and, and you go you talk about your feelings about whatever you want your comedy act to be you do that um, my personal experience is, and I, I don't do, I've never done anti-man material, anti-guy material, uh, anti, I don't make jokes about my husband. Um, a lot of people do. I, that's their choice. That's not my viewpoint, you know, and I, <laughs> I think that's horrible jokes know. about my wife's death. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, I think i you know what I, the first two years after my dad died, all I did was like my whole 10 minutes was death. Like I remember doing Gotham comedy <laughs> club in New York, New York. And I did my whole 10 minutes on death and got really good laughs. And I was like, Oh, you can talk about death and people will be there because so many people have experienced something and just be real. I just, my thing is my experience. I'm not, I don't do anti guy material. I will call guys out for stuff, but I call women out for stuff too. Yeah. Um, but if, you know, you got to be real. And if you're having those thoughts about this is what men are like, or this is what women are like, I prefer a comedian who's going to be real, be real and work through it, you know, be real, work through stuff with the audience, work through stuff. And, and I don't mean be, make them your psychologist. I just mean, work <laughs> through the humor, work for the humor of all that stuff, because I think we have to do that to survive. But I remember when I first started doing comedy, like one of the first managers I was introduced to, uh, you know, basically proposed sexual assault, you know, let's oh. put it that way, delicate, delicately, the first time I met him in his office alone. You That's know, a very nice way of putting it, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to, 
give him a give him the time a day. But you know, I had a lot of I had more than one person at club men at a club the first day I went in of my first day of the gig threatened me sexually or harass me in different ways. I mean, I don't know any women who haven't been through that. Um, and some, and a few instances where it was downright scary, some scary okay. things in condos. They used to put you in a condo with other comics. I've had some, and I know of some horrible things that happened to women in condos, women comics. So there was that danger, but so, but just as much, I've always had, and more than that, actually, more than those negative gross experiences, I've had guys who were like my big brother. Okay. And treated me like an equal from the get-go. I've had guys, and I know some people would bristle at the uh, knight in shining armorness of this statement, but I've had gone into a green room and sat down and had some new comic start in on me, some headliner and had other comics jump in between him and me verbally. And they would say, okay. I know you don't need that, but I'm going to do, you know, dude. And, you know, I've had that happen. So where I've had them be my big brother, treat me like I'm there. This is my sister. And you're not going to talk to her like that, you know, and I've had a lot of that happen. And so when I think of comedy and men, I don't think uh, of the vile stuff first. Like if we're oh, going to bring good. it up and talk about it, I have vile stories, but that's not what comedy is to me. But, you know, and I've got so many guy comedian friends that are running shows now and writing screenplays and I see their names on credits and then they're famous and, you know, and I know those people and they're good, good people. And they recognize that the good guys always see that stuff and they always do something about it. And so there's you always good guys and there's always good women. You know, the women have always been, I only in a, the latest few years of comedy ever ran into mean women comics. Um, and it's not the people I met in clubs. Um, mm -hmm. And that was really, that was really shocking for me because my, most of my female comic interaction uh, has also been positive and you're so funny. Let me, I'm giving your, giving you your name to so-and-so and I'm going to, it's been, I have met some of the best people I've ever met in life or could ever hope to meet. I've met in comedy and, and yeah, all the, yeah, no disclaimer. Most of the women I've met in comedy, um, especially the ones that get this uh, reputation and excuse my language, but for being like, uh, I guess called cunty, you know, mm -hmm. Yeah. Most of the women in comedy that I've met that have had that reputation, yeah, when they first met me, they had their, you know, their defenses up, obviously. But once you get to know well, them. Well, that's a learned very, response, you know. Yeah, yeah. they're very loving and, and nurturing people. So, you know, mm -hmm. people are that way with their defenses for a reason. Just be nice. Be who you are. But one thing I never understood, um, we talked about this, uh, you know, males being aggressive and whatnot, is when these yeah. guys, you'll see they message a woman you know, for whatever intentions. And I've seen women politely reject them, you know, no, thanks. I'm not mm -hmm. interested. And then they go off, you stupid fucking cunt, you whore, you stupid bitch. Mm -hmm. Like, what are you mm -hmm. doing? She didn't want to have sex with you. Now she's a whore. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. sense does that make? It makes no sense. And I mean, there's misogyny, like 
in our country and in the world, we need to deal with racism. We need to deal with misogyny too. It's it's Absolutely. ridiculous. Like what, no matter what you think of Hillary Clinton, no matter what you thought of her politics, and I see this with women I, I completely disagree with too politically, where they get treated or called certain things or called out for being ugly or, you know, it's like they go the first place. And of course, women saw that in what's his name immediately. Um, oh, yeah. but they get called, called out, you know, in the first place they go is a sexist place. You know, the, the, the misogyny that you see thrown at women who have deigned to climb a ladder of power, you know, how dare you think you can be president? You know, how dare yeah. you think that, you know, and I mean, the stuff women get criticized for that men oh, never get criticized for. What grinds my gears the most is that, uh, attack on Michelle Obama, where they go, you know, she has a penis and all that other jazz. Um, I'll go on it's, record it's, and it's first off, I'll say that I think Michelle Obama, not that this gives her any type of credibility or anything. I think she's the most beautiful first lady we've ever had. Um, she was, but when they you go, know what? She's when they go, brilliant she penis. and amazing. Like she is brilliant yes. and amazing. And when you think, and because of the racism in our country, she and Barack Obama had to be the cleanest living, mm -hmm. most high above board behaving, smarter than the rest of them. You know, the people they were yeah. running against could, couldn't hold a candle to them. And I they had to, to be, he had to be so much smarter. He had to be so much smarter and so much cleaner living. Elegant. That's a very southernism, very a clean, clean living. Uh, um, you know, when you think <laughs> about people who are operating at this level of we should aspire to be that. I all yes. they're the best. They I, I told Gary, I said it just pisses me off all the time, these people I saw criticize Obama. And I had friends writing me notes about him. How can you how can you uh, support him? And I'm like, he's like character wise the best thing we've seen come down the pike in many, many years. Like, I can't believe Absolutely. he even wants the job. I'm just kind of like, he wants the job? Oh, God, let's give it to him. You know, please. Um, just, and I just do to feel entertain, like the what? Just to entertain uh, that nonsense, like, uh, with the penis, uh, to those guys saying that, say she does have a penis. Okay, now she's a man. She's a more successful man than you. So what the fuck are you doing now? Well, I mean, and it's such an interesting misogynist and anti-gender, you know, messing with the gender of people. Like people always yes. think that's such an insult to like tell a woman she has a penis because of this or tell a man he's got a vagina. It's just such, it's such grade school bullying. It's one of those things like that's where you go. That's where you go. You have to make fun of someone's gender identity or sexual uh sexual preference or or their just their whole identity as a sexual being you've got that's where you attack like you can't attack their policy you got to tell mm -hmm. obama she doesn't she doesn't sexually attract you who cares she doesn't yeah who gives a shit you know you know i just that that whole idea of i think you're ugly it's like who cares you know, I've had yeah, we're, people we're say stuff age. to me. I had a friend one time say, you know, you'd look pretty good if you had a nose job. I said, you know what? Oh, you'd be wow. pretty nice if you had any manners. You know, it's just like, who cares what you think? My nose looks like my family's nose. I like my nose. 
And it was just one I mean, of those I, things where I, I just was I mean, like, you're kidding. Yeah, you know, you're kidding that you think that's something you can say to somebody and they're supposed to care about. I just laughed in his face. I was like, really? Wow. Okay. You can, yeah, go we're ahead at a point in where we're changing, we're, we're becoming more accepting of people's choices, which is phenomenal. But I'll still get the insults where someone will call me a, a and I'm not a homosexual, but they use a gay slur just to mm. try and egg you on. And I get in these conversations. I'm like, look, you're not even insulting me. Cause like, what does it matter? Like, my best friend is gay, so I don't give a shit if you, oh, you suck dick, John. If I did, that's none of your goddamn business, furthermore, and it doesn't change the fact of our interaction. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really arrested development thing. Like, I, we saw a lot of arrested development on Wednesday at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. You saw mm-hmm. a lot of those people that the things that they're asserting are... They're ignorant. First of all, they're they think they're being persecuted because there's other people like women and people of color and black people wanting equal rights. Equal rights offends them. Yeah, it, that's it so offends wild. them. Equal equality in the tax system. Uh, people paying corporations paying what they owe corporations keeping their money and taxes in the United States, you know, all that kind of stuff that built that that's the trickle down damage that's happening. And, and they're the ones in seats of privilege, because you know what, one thing that I saw somebody talking about was like all that gear, like those Kevlar vests and mm-hmm. how much are those MAGA hats? Like all that, you know, the $50 hoodies that had their stuff mm-hmm. on. And, and, and they all obviously had time on the days off work, you know, to come to the, yeah. you know, they all, you know, um, maybe because of COVID, they can't go to their jobs. But uh, yeah, Biden's not the one to blame for that. You know, it's just, it, it it's just, the, the ignorance and the weird cycle of disinformation that they're gulping down daily. And then that whole, that's an arrested development too thing of being, thinking you're the victim all the time and being the bratty toddler at the table where you have what everybody else has, but it's not enough, or you have more than everybody else has, you know, little to- bratty toddlers usually get more attention and more yeah. things than the other people in the room. But the little bratty toddlers, the one having a fit, you know, my gosh, that's, I just, a, that's I, a great I, segue I, too. <laughs> um, just because, you know, Trump doesn't need any more anybody's money. I want to take the opportunity to let you people know <laughs> that our merch store you know, we got some cool designs. Uh, there's a hoodie right there on screen. There's uh, one of our shirts. They come in many colors, many designs. We've even got face masks. Uh, it helps support the podcast. It is not uh, It is not helping out it's another rich man. Who yeah, and they're not $50, guys. They're cheaper than that. So check this out. Now, I want to, uh, I want to get to two more things before we uh, wrap this up. The first is your Las Vegas poll story. Oh yeah, it's not that great a story, so we didn't really need to build up to it. But anyway, it's just it's just about <laughs> fame. It's just the fame thing. Um, when I first started out, my dream in comedy was I'm going to be a famous comedian. I'm going to get a sitcom. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to make money off this funny thing. And um, I, I wanted to be famous. And the more I was around famous people and fame and met famous people and got to know them and their lives, the less attractive fame has become to me. And I don't like, 
I, I would love for people to buy my artwork uh, a lot, you know, buy my paintings, buy my stuff. Um, I don't need to be recognized on the street. I think that's a burden, you know, for people. And my pool story is, so one of those weeks I was working in Vegas, I decided to go down by the pool. And when you're working in Vegas at a casino, you're in the building with the law, the same, your audience, mostly like most of the people that are coming down to the shows. I'm sorry. I'm so jealous right now. I would love to work at Vegas. Oh, it was fun. Maybe I'll do it again someday. Who knows? But, (laughs) but uh, you're in the hotel of the casino. Most of those people that come into the shows are staying there. So you're running into your audience basically all the time. It's like a landlocked cruise ship, you know? And so, you would see people that were in the audience and you'd be in the casino or you'd be doing something eating or something. People would come up and go, Oh, you were so funny last night. I really enjoyed your show. And it was real friendly and nice. I don't mind that. But there's this one time. So I go out to the pool and I had this paperback book. I don't remember. It was probably, I think it was three days of the condor. I think that's what I was reading. Okay. It's actually six days of the condor. Uh, the book is, but uh, I remember book? having my paperback and I'm, I'm a bookophile. Like I'm one of those, like don't mess with my books. You know, like, oh, can you tell? <laughs> like, yeah. I love books. We're ridiculous with our books in this house. It's ridiculous. But we love our books and we read them. And we, some of them we read more than once. And I had my book down. And it was the second reading of Six Days of the Condor. I had it down by my lounge at the pool. I've been swimming. I kind of lay it. I read a little. My book, close my eyes. Sunny day. And I, you know how when you've got your eyes closed, but it's sunny, you can feel a shadow. I start feeling yes. shadows like I can I can sense that there's and I open my eyes and there's like a family of six standing around my chase lounge <laughs> I'm lying <laughs> and like you know I I don't hate my body but my swimsuit wearing moment is not my proudest moment it's not <laughs> my proudest moment is when I'm in all black and fishnets and glitter Doc Martens not in my swimsuit. I'm lying there in my swimsuit and I look up and I am literally, there's this family like lined up around. And, and first, the first thing I noticed is somebody's dripping on my book. Oh no. (laughs) And that made me mad because they're dripping. I'm like, oh, look on the book. But I'm like, hi. (laughs) And they go, they go, you were really funny last night. We thought you were so funny. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm still kind of discombobulated because I just like, whoa, this is weird. And um, I said, thank you so much. And they're like, we were, we really thought you were really funny. And we were wondering if you could sign something for us. And um, they had a napkin from the hotel cocktail lounge. Uh, okay. So I signed that. I'm like, oh, I said, God, I, I don't. And they're like, we have a pen. I'm like, okay. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm like sitting there in my stupid swimsuit going, hey, everybody. Yeah. And, and I remember, and then they walked away and they were, they were nice as they could be. They were kind of weird. Like that was kind of weird way to approach me, like to stand around me. Like I'm in the closing scene of, uh, you know, a horror movie with the, with the coven around you. But uh, no offense to coven. No offense to Covens, but you know, they yeah. were just standing around me. And I thought, this is like that 
scene in the ninth gate when they're anyway, but uh, <laughs> it was weird, but then they were really as nice as they could be, but it was still so strange to just be doing your thing and have like this happen. And I've n known enough famous people and been around enough that it's very weird how they get treated. And I'm, yeah, I don't. So that's basically the pool story. I, okay. I, I just don't have fame. It's not what I used to think that I right want it. Like, I'm just kind of like, no, I just really would. I would like, I don't mind money. I would like to make more money. I'd like to make a lot of money. Um, that, I'm op totally open to that. But the fame thing, kind of, it's a mixed bag. And I think you have to, um, and we've got social media now and I'm posting mostly what I post on like my Instagram and stuff is mostly my artwork and my cartoons. Like you could probably scroll for a few weeks and never see my face except in the profile picture part. Would you, know? you want to take this time to uh, let the people know where they can find you? You have art, um, all types of art, you're a stand up. let them know where they can find you, where they can book from you, where they can purchase stuff. Okay. Um, my website, uh, most of my stuff is laughing redhead and, uh, my website is laughingredhead.com, and my Instagram is at laughing redhead. My Twitter is at laughing redhead. My Etsy shop is, you know, slash laughing redhead. So, so that's the best way to find me on my Instagram, which is again at laughing redhead. The link in the profile is my link tree, which has a drop down. And in that drop down, you can find my Patreon. You can find my original art, how to, how to buy my original art, how to buy my comics, um, how to buy prints. I'm setting up a new print shop for some of my other, I'll show you this. Like I've been doing these things in my sketchbook and these are some paintings and things that I do like this. Like, so I'm making prints of these kinds of things. Oh, wow. Um, that's beautiful. So I'm making prints of those and going to make those available soon. But I have, uh, yeah, because see, I've done them in a sketchbook, so I can't sell the originals because they're back to back. So. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, okay. that's how I do beautiful. it. Very beautiful. Oh, thank you. But anyway, so the link tree will have everything. This is so funny. I've got like some, oh, there it is. Okay. Um, so the link tree in my Instagram, if you'll go to at laughing redhead and Instagram, and that'll be the link tree. I think I might have the link tree on my Twitter too, but then that has everything like okay. on it. Mm -hmm. So uh, make sure you guys go out and, and check her out. Um, wonderful person. Uh, this was a phenomenal you interview. Too, Johnny. Thank you so much for, Oh, oh my God. You've you just listened on. to me. Yammer. You're so nice. <laughs> Well, a lot of people don't know as an interviewer, that's you're there to facilitate. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can add stuff. You're but there I to let people keep their mouth off. That's what you're there yeah. for. <laughs> now, I always so nice. like to try and end it uh, with asking you uh, to solicit some advice uh, for people out there that either mm. want to start becoming uh, an artist, whether visually or otherwise, or want to start comedy. What advice can you give to someone who wants to go out there and pursue something well i'd say just do it no i would say do some homework 
and here's the thing. I saw a friend of mine on Facebook today posted, please don't be sending me stuff to read or look at. And I've, I, and just in the last few years have started having that happen where lots of people want to send me tapes and comics and art and stuff and scripts to look at. And I have learned to say no because it's too much. And what he said today, I just, and it was just today he said this, was like, just make your stuff. Keep making your stuff. Keep doing it. Keep doing whatever you're passionate about like that. If it's writing you want to do, write stuff. Keep writing and reading. You know, read screenplays. Read, watch movies if you want to write movies. If you want to do comedy, go to some open mic nights. Um, it, I think open mic nights are more educational at the beginning than... Mm-hmm maybe watching like this glitzy specials, but I guess it depends on your personality and what inspires you. But I would say do homework on comedy and how to write a joke and know that before you choose not to write jokes. You know what I mean? I I think people need to know how to write jokes, but that's my bent. You know, that's my, I'm bothered when people need to edit things. I'm always like, oh, they could have used like five less words, you know, (laughs) and gotten, (laughs) oh, they didn't end on the funny word. They put the funny word in the middle and then people started laughing while you were still talking. You know, it's like, no, 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 end on the funny word, wait for the laugh. You know, just stuff like that, like how do jokes work in and on, you know, that. And and also, as I say that, don't get overwhelmed with advice. Like if you have a passion and you think you're funny and you think you'd like to try that, you know, go go just see what it's like. Just go watch an open mic night and you will see people fail and that will teach you. And, and you'll see people fail and you'll see people get back up on their feet again after that. And that should inspire you. It's easy to be the person, and I've I've had those shows where I've been the person where I could have done another 30 minutes and they would have loved it, loved it, where you're just riding the wave. It's great. It's amazing. You come off stage, they buy your merch, you know, it's just great. But that doesn't teach you as much as the struggle and the mm-hmm. solve it, the problem solving part of it. And I think it's the same with cartooning. And with, uh, yeah, I do a comic on Go Comics, but that's in my link tree too. You'll see that. And it's called Laughing Redhead Comics. But okay. do do the thing, you know, just keep doing it, you know, in notebooks. Like I've started doing this thing now with like, I've got these beautiful, nice sketchbooks and stuff that I like. This is like 140 pound watercolor paper. But see, I also do a lot of stuff in and, and full on artwork. Like I'll do it in um, just, you know, this thing. Like I, I buy these and then I, I mark up here what I'm working on and stuff and that way get your ideas on paper or in your computer if you're more comfortable digitally you know I have a friend who says he writes entire screenplays through his phone I'm like I really like sticky notes and paper and I like working in a program and stuff so whatever helps you kind of take the steps and do the work do the work and keep doing the work and if it's a passion of yours like I'll tell you something. I've seen comedians that at the beginning I was like, I don't know. Oh, he does does not get it. He can't. And they stuck with it. And there's some of, and I won't name names because I don't want them to know. I thought that when I first saw them, but they've become (laughs) some of the best. I'm serious. They've just become beautiful, amazing, brilliant artists at the craft of comedy. 
And I thought, damn it, I'm so glad I was wrong about that person. I mean, I never said that to them. I never told, I don't, I don't, I don't offer advice about people's stuff. I don't. If people ask about a specific joke, like I'll be glad to do that. Yeah. But I don't go, I don't walk up to people and go, eh, you really could have. And I just, what's, what's that for? That's not for anything. Um, I feel like don't let people step on, on your dream, but, but do listen when people have constructive advice. Don't be afraid to get constructive advice. The hardest thing for me that I still fail at is um, watching tapes of myself. I hate watching tapes of myself. It's just really yeah. hard for me. Um, uh, and the way I said that, like, it's just me. It's just hard for me. I know a lot of people feel that way. Like, it's really, like, torture to watch yourself. And then you go, oh, my God, does my hair really look like that? Is my belly really <laughs> that big? Oh, my God. You know, you're like, do I really talk like that? Like, I don't, I'll go, what? That's what my voice sounds like? You're kidding me. You know. Um, and there yeah, was a I time when I thought, I, see, and I love doing voices. Like, I actually thought that's what I would end up doing would be voiceover stuff. Because I used to, I used to do that a lot in Colorado, like character voices and dialects and stuff. Okay. I love doing that kind of thing. But I would just say, just work at what you do and watch. I mean, educate yourself about the industry you're interested in. Like, don't say, I'm going to be a cartoonist and never look at cartoons, you know? Yeah. You just well, need to have a respect for the field you want to enter, I guess. Um, that is that is great advice. Um, and again, <laughs> is it? Okay. Thank you, thank you so much for coming on the program. I'll be honest. Thank I you. was impressed uh, with just all the things you do from seeing you on Facebook. And uh, now that I've got a mouth off now, about politics all the time. I uh, I am just uh, full of adoration for you and, and love everything oh, about so you. Well, the feeling's so, mutual. Uh, it's so good talking with you. So good getting to know oh, you better. You. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate that. Uh, guys, thank you for tuning in. Um, Teresa Roberts Logan, everybody. Make sure you check her out. We'll be back next week with Brianna Woodward, who is a comic and artist as well. Um, out of uh, New England is where we're going to put it. I think she's in Massachusetts. Uh, but that's it for now. There's not much stand-up going on. Uh, at the end of January or the beginning of February, I should be in Indianapolis for uh, for a show. Um, more updates with that to come. But thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Teresa. Uh, peace and love, everybody. Thank you.